bars. Hey, guard, get a load of that. Just waiting for you to kiss it. Babes and brawls. These are the elements most associated with the exploitation subgenre known as the women in prison film. Like a bevy of other sexploitation genres that proliferated during the 1970s and 1980s, in both Euro and American horror, with the occasional Japanese edition, it's a case of what could be described as once you've seen one, you've seen them all, to put it glibly. So where's the bread? I got it. Here. Where's it from? Well, we in the flake. Dynamite. Who's bringing it in? What's it to you? Just curious. Curious my ass. There are dozens of films, mostly softcore, that can be described as a women in prison film. And the plot structure is generally the same throughout with slight variations. The story typically begins with the framing of an innocent young woman. Come on, kid, what's the matter? You got rigor mortis? Relax, relax. Often blonde. Oh, listen, you've been great. They, you know, they said they found heroin in my purse over a hundred times. It was all a mistake. They're trying to frame me. Who is wrongfully convicted of a crime, usually drug-related, though sometimes rape-revenge-related. Advice. We have our own set of rules in here, and the quicker you learn them, the better off you're going to be. She is sentenced to incarceration at an implausibly sexual women's prison run by a strict imposing wardeness, henceforth referred to as simply warden through the rest of this video essay. The prison is full of hardened criminals, the bad girls to her good girl, and they take many pains to remind her of her position. Green, scared, and pretty. Through various acts of homoerotic bullying. The women that occupy the prison are in an abject, oppressed position, sadomasochistically tortured by the warden, guards, and sometimes prison doctors. Hold her hands and feet. All right. Open your mouth. Throat looks all right. Now settle down. Perhaps as a way to take back some of their power, and also because these are criminals after all, the inmates brutalize each other, often through acts of female-on-female -female rape and murder. There are a few archetypes that are consistent in the women in prison film, and they are made up of a binary of predators and victims, with wardens, guards, doctors, and particularly hardened inmates on one end, with innocent victims, usually the framed heroine or a tragic drug addict, on the other end. 
The Women in Prison film is an underexplored genre in feminist media criticism, usually written off as fluff products of the objectifying male gaze. The most notable piece of writing that has recontextualized the Women in Prison film as having some radical potential is Susanna Denuda Walter's essay in Real Knockouts, Violent Women in Movies from 2001, titled The Revolution of Women in Prison Films. Walters writes, quote, Women in prison films elaborate fully the creation of the marginal subject. Marginalized by gender, stigmatized by sexual preference, victimized by callous bureaucracies, physically isolated and preyed upon, these women are most assuredly the market other. Because the genre itself assumes a certain otherness, criminal women, Differences literally explode and proliferate. Interracial friendships, lesbian sexuality. Listen, Jerry. I like you a lot. I could take care of you, make life real easy for you. I want you to belong to me. Female rebellion and violence all come into play. Women in prison films, in all their strangeness, their multiple marginality often present images of women and women's relationships rarely found in more mainstream genres. Women in this world live together, love together, fight each other, and most centrally, fight back against the largely male systems of brutal domination that keep them all down." End quote. Indeed, much like the plumed rape-revenge genre, the women-in-prison film has similar alternative possibilities that complicate the thesis of ultimate objectification. In this essay, I'd like to add my own recontextualization of this subgenre within the framework of Marquis de Sade's philosophy. More specifically, I will analyze the thematic elements of female sadism and predator-slash-victim dichotomies as presented by Angela Carter in her seminal 1979 book on Saad's female characters, titled The Saadian Woman and the Ideology of Pornography. The Saadian Woman is a feminist reading of the Marquis de Saad in which Carter describes his pornographic ideology as in the service of women, or at least creates room within it for an ideology not inimical to women. I will focus mostly on her analysis of Saad's books, Justine and Juliet, arguably his most famous. The two characters who are sisters act as foils to one another within a context of sadism. Justine is the ultimate victim, Juliet the apex Saadian predator. I will also discuss 120 Days of Sodom, particularly in my analysis of the prison structure itself and in the Death Drive and Eros section. As described by Carter, Saad believed it would, quote, only be through the medium of sexual violence that women might heal themselves 
of their socially inflicted scars in a praxis of destruction and sacrilege, end quote. The women imprisoned film, through its representation of female sadism, illustrates the Saudian ideology of sexual terrorism as freedom from social constraint and of the untapped sexual energy of women as powerful enough to disrupt our carefully constructed social realities. The Marquis de Sade was famously imprisoned multiple times throughout his life, a fact one can't help but recall when discussing Saudian theory and women imprisoned films particularly. Imprisonment is a theme he revisits over and over again in his pornographic writings. Obsessed by the brothel, that setting itself becomes a prison, a torture chamber, what Carter describes as a evil Eden. The apotheosis of this concept appears most prominently in his unfinished work, 120 Days of Sodom, where in a group of libertines orchestrate an elaborate kidnapping and torture of a group of young girls and boys that they take to an abandoned remote castle to carry out their deeds. Justine, too, has its fair share of imprisonment settings. The titular doomed heroine spends most time herself in a women's prison and is held captive and tortured along with other women in various configurations, most notably at a perverted monastery. The eponymous prison of the women in prison film functions similarly to Saad's brothels and castles. Like these literary settings, the prison in these films functions as a literal symbolic barrier from the constraints of polite society. Once victims enter the space, they are met with an entirely different set of rules and social mores from what they've known, one based on the currency of violence and power. In that way, it is a more honest distillation of our societal structure, which oppresses victims and privileges predators. The prison is the apex of the oppression we already inhabit under capitalism. Once inside the walls of the women's prison, the inmates are cut off from society and humanity itself. They are completely dehumanized and made into objects for the pleasure of their captors. They are often stripped of their names and given numbers. Your name? Carol Jeffries. Where are you from? California. California matron. Whenever you pigs speak to the staff, you say matron. Understand? Enter, bud. Say it! Yes, matron. Good. Sign here. This is going to be just like back home. Only different! Reply to the question when addressed. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, and say Head Warden. Yes, sorry, Head Warden. Number 341. I do have a name, you know. You had. What was it? It's Cynthia. Ah. Well, now it's 341. You can go ahead and beat me all you'd like, but I ain't ratting on anyone. Oh, no.
Nathalie Mendoza. On dit madame Matricule 98, madame. Hosed down like animals. And forcibly stripped of their clothing and made to exist in the nude, in absurd situations. Move aside, you there, French girl. As the father of modern sadomasochism, it is unsurprising that most of the dehumanizing imagery is pulled directly from the Marquis de Sade's pornographic writings. Victims are often stripped of their apparel and names in an effort to symbolically separate them from their predators. As Lindsay Ann Hallam says in her book Screening the Marquis de Sade, Pleasure, Pain, and the Transgressive Body in Film, the strict Sadian hierarchy is one where people are separated into master and slave, with the master thinking only of their own pleasure in the dehumanization of their victims. That there are so many scenes in the women in prison film where prisoners literally touch each other or men through the bars, fucking through the structure, is even more indicative of the status of the prison walls themselves.
To mentally recall the women in prison film is to conjure the image of softcore lesbianism, both voluntary and coerced. Since the days of the earliest women in prison films, the potentiality of the homoerotic, homosociality of the prison setting has been much exploited for pornographic titillation. These relationships fall outside the realm of reality in regards to actual real-life lesbian relationships, which can of course take many different forms with many different kinds of people. And so, I am not examining the lesbianism in these films as in any way, shape, or form close to the lived reality of lesbian experience. In the Women in Prison film, there is a narrow and exacting view of lesbian relationships, which act more symbolically than literally, and each type falls under the purview of the Saudian woman, as outlined by Angela Carter. Stop, please. I love it as much as you do, sweetheart. Make the most of it. Enjoy, enjoy my love. My lover, there. Oh. The Marquis de Sade seems to have been obsessed by same-sex relations, much in the same way he was fascinated by any sexual deviance, most notably anal sex. To Saad, anal sex exemplified the apex of perversion. The seed, the germ of life that is meant to penetrate the womb, is instead ejaculated into the rectum, symbolizing death and decay, and thus is a perversion of procreation and of God itself. It is worth noting that the Marquis de Saad was an atheist, in a time when it was almost unheard of to claim such a thing. This is well-tread ground by theorists such as Leo Bersani in his piece, Is the Rectum a Grave?, which analyzes such theory through the lens of gay male sexuality. Just as anal sex symbolizes the perversion of the reproductive process, so does homosexual congress spit in the face of good Christian heterosexual sex for the sake of reproduction. As such, Saad's heroines often enjoy homosexual sex to the fullest extent. Using the example of Madame d'Alban from Juliette, the mother superior that instructs the eponymous character on the ways of lesbian love, Carter writes, like all Saad's rational women, d'Alban prefers her own sex. Take, for example, this passage from Juliet, where Delben graphically instructs our heroine. Quote, Since you first arrived at this establishment, Madame Delben began, kissing me rather carelessly upon the forehead, her eye and hand betraying a certain restlessness. I have had an unabating desire to make your intimate acquaintance. You are very attractive. You appear to me to be in possession of some wit and aptitude, and young maids of your sort have a very definite place in my heart. Do you blush, little angel? But I forbid you to blush. Modesty is an illusion. 
resulting from what? Tis the result of naught but our cultural manners and our upbringing. It is what is known as a conventional habit. Nature having created man and woman naked, it is unthinkable that she could have implanted in them an aversion or shame thus to appear. Had man only faithfully observed nature's promptings, he would never have fallen subject to modesty. The iron-clad truth, my heart, proves that there are certain virtues whose source lies nowhere save in total negligence or ignorance of the code of nature. Ah, but might one not give a wrench to Christian morals, were one in this way to scrutinize all the articles which compose it? But we'll chat about that later on. Let's speak of other matters for the nonce. Will you join us in our undress? This passage is certainly erotic, and indeed the women engage in a graphically rendered threesome shortly thereafter. But there is more to the text than the goal of arousing the reader. Madame Delban orates on the pointlessness of modesty and shame, demonstrating the ideal values of the Saadian woman. Saad's ideal heroine is one who engages with, like Delban, the high philosophies of the day and she also prefers her own sex. In the Woman in Prison film, the predatory female wardens act as Saudian heroines, concerned with nothing but their own lust for power and the sexual enslavement of the imprisoned women they rule. Whenever one of these characters is introduced, her physicality is immediately contrasted to that of the prisoners to signal her power and dominance. You went the whole nine yards in your first defense? It's ambitious. No. It's no, ma'am. No, ma'am. You know, they call this place the cage, Michelle. The longer I work here, I think they're goddamn right. Guards, the zookeepers. And you are the animals. As long as you stay loyal to me, I'll protect you. And you'll have certain privileges. She is often physically larger than the inmates, Tall, imposing, she rules all. She is portrayed as living in comfort in comparison to the inmates, her private office slash bedroom acting as her intimate torture chamber where her lesbian machinations take place behind closed doors.
give me the money to pay off Sheila, right? She's given me three days. Abby, you're so beautiful. Sad. You're not gonna let Sheila hurt me. Someone's been picking cherries. You're not a virgin any longer. Why not? I don't know. Have you been only masturbating, my dear? Yes. I didn't like it much at first. It's so relaxing. I never sleep here. What a pity, poor child. I'll bet you have made love with Ingrid. No, never with girls. Ingrid's made passes at me. Oh. Who else has? You never had sex with a man? No. With a guard? Uh, no. No, never with a guard. Why Let me help you, little one. After you made love with him, then he carried your message to the good governor. You sneak. Uh, no. Uh, you're wrong. I've done nothing. We'll see. Uh. Listen, my dear, if you continue to tell me lies, we'll have to punish you. It is not only the wardens who exercise power and control. Most women in prison films open with an innocent young woman who is wrongly convicted of a crime, as I stated earlier in this video essay. These innocents are forced to enter the depraved world of the women's prison, populated by sadists and degenerates. Through various episodes of bullying and debasement at the hands of the wardens, officers, and other perverted bad girl inmates, she is stripped of her dignity and innocence. In this way, the innocent character is positioned as a kind of Justine. Justine is perhaps the Marquis de Sade's most famous text. It concerns a 12-year-old maiden, Justine, who sets off to make her way in France, and follows her until age 26 in her quest for virtue. She is presented with various sexual lessons hidden under a virtuous mask and is robbed, raped, beaten, and stripped of her dignity through tortures throughout the novel. Though she is tested over and over, she never gives up her quest for virtue. This is in direct contrast to her sister Juliet, who is a sadistic Sadian heroine that lives only for her own pleasure and monstrosity. Says Carter, quote, Justine marks the start of a kind of self-regarding female masochism, a woman with no place in the world, no status, the core of whose resistance has been eaten away by self-pity. The innocently condemned female victims in the women in prison films act as Justines to the Juliets that far outnumber them. Writing in Female Masculinity in 1998, Jack Halberstrom describes the tension as a butch-femme dichotomy. What is so funny, Amy? We got a bank robber in here. Sheila, meet Michelle. Hi.
quote, the prisoners tend to be sorted into two main types, the innocent femme who needs to toughen up and the predatory butch who will either protect the femme or take advantage of her, end quote. I would argue that none of the characters in the women in prison film are particularly butch or masculine. The wardens are often seen in lacy lingerie when they're behind closed doors, hidden away in the trappings of femininity. We could read this as a way to humble these villainesses, and the emphasis on their bisexuality as a way to soften the predatory lesbianism. But they are no less aggressive and exacting in these situations than when they are in uniform on the prison floor. Their femininity does not tamp down what Carter calls male appetites and is quote-unquote part of the armory of self-interest. Another Angela Carter quote about the character of Claire Will, the man-hater can exhaust the combined pricks of all the inhabitants of the Monastery of the Carmelites, since this insatiability has in itself a castratory function. Male sexuality exhausts itself in its exertion. Claire Will unmans men by fucking them and then retires to the inexhaustible arms of her female lovers. For these women, the living prick and the manufactured dildo are interchangeable. Both are simply sources of pleasure. The body itself, to which the prick is or has been attached, is no more than a machine for the production of sensation. Angela Carter calls Juliet and other Saudian heroines libertinage, one of sexual terrorism. Quote, she lives for sensual excess, and pain is a judicious sharpening of her senses. Saud's libertines live for bodily pleasures, and the infliction of pain is just one of the myriad ways they enact their power over their victims. This relationship has been referred to throughout Saudian analysis as sadomasochism. Carter herself uses the term, and uses the term masochism as well. Yet Lindsay Ann Hallam explains in her book why this term is inaccurate in regards to Saud, using Deleuzian theory. Quote, Part of the pleasure is to feel the power one has over another, to have the ability to make someone act against his or her will. In other words, true sadism does not work in tandem with masochism, because the masochist takes pleasure in the pain enacted on them, even desires and craves it, whereas the sadist's pleasure derives from the victim's unwillingness and the superiority they feel over a non-consenting victim. These are the kinds of sadists that populate the women in prison film. As Carter says of Saudi and Libertines, quote, they immediately recognize those girls who will look most beautiful when they are crying. St. Fawn, who employs Justine's wicked brunette sister Juliette as her procuress, questions her anxiously about one of her fun. Does she weep? I love to see women weep. 
With me, they always do. All of them. And women certainly weep in the women in prison film. Sapphic torture is the crowning jewel of these films, often occurring in multiple ritualized manners throughout the narrative. Female inmates are punished at will for minor infractions, or sometimes for no reason at all but the pleasure of the wardens and officers. Inmates are bound. Don't scream. You keep saying you don't know anything about that heroin. We don't believe it, see? We know you know. You wanted some sun on your body? Well, that's what you're gonna get. But you ain't gonna want it after a while. Whipped. Bon, nous commencerons demain. Put in cages like the base animal. She is a beautiful creature, though. Look at the way she trembles. A fighter, eh? I like that. I'll soon tame you, my pretty beast. That's all you are an animal in a cage. Try to get out. Yeah, that's it. Go on, try to escape. Your squirming is pure joy to me. Pain and degradation is a core element of the women in prison film, with the violation and non-consent of the female inmates being fodder for the sadistic predators that populate the evil Edenic prison life. The pain inflicted on the victims, the Justines, 
is transformed into the predator's pleasure, the Juliet's. As Carter explains of this symbiotic dynamic, quote, Juliet has learned to take pleasure from pain and herself demands that delicious excitation of the nerve. Let's see if this little game loosens your tongue. This game is called survival. Let's see how well you can play it. I was strung up behind smack at 10 and worked in the streets when I was 12. You've got a long way to go. Is this to get your kicks? In addition to enduring pain, the victim inmates are also made to consume slash bathe in filth as part of their debasement and torture. The elevated status of filth is a core theme of Saad, with many characters reveling in the act of licking dirty anuses and eating fecal matter, or making their victims commit these disgusting acts. Corpophagy is a rare fetish, but it takes center stage in Saad's lexicon of sexual activity. Juliet trains herself to eat the shit of her higher-ups to court their favor. In the 120 Days of Sodom, 
The four libertines who rule the castle always take a victim or two with them to the privy to clean their anuses for them with their tongues. An elaborate bureaucracy is established to govern the production and distribution of fecal matter. That the libertines are free to defecate and revel in filth whenever they please, but their victims are strictly governed in this activity, denotes their courtly status as masters over their slaves. It is a representation of their greed and power. As Carter explains, quote, The libertines usurp the primary physical function of the body. They monopolize the elementary productions of the bodies of others and arbitrarily regulate involuntary physical functions. Not the pursuit of erotic pleasure, but enlightened self-interest has overcome the barrier of disgust. Wipe my culo. Oh, you're not done yet. Now you're really eat it. Come on, lick my culo. Don't you want to know about Rosa Phillips? It's not so bad. Lick it clean. Now don't quit. You're doing well. Keep it up. <laughs> the inmate victims are subjected to various filthy conditions, such as eating food that rats have already gnawed on, or trapped in holes naked and covered in filth as punishment. Little friends, I'm so glad you're here. Otherwise, I'd go crazy. Come here. You're lovely. And so tiny. You won't leave me, will you? Like a band of Saudian libertines, the wardens and guards are in control of the filth. They command it, govern it, whereas the inmates are powerless victims. Hey! subjected to the whims of their tormentors at their will. They are subjected to filth and governed within the bureaucratic carceral system of the prison. Their abject victimhood fuels the cruelty of their masters and mistresses. The Royal Lavatory Cleaner. Hurry up, toilet trash. What are you waiting for? Go! Fast! Fast! No! I gave you an order. Obey it! Be in company, I'm reserving 
surprise. The figure of the whore, specifically a woman who exchanges sex for financial gain, is a Sodian heroine. For instance, in 120 Days of Sodom, the four libertines take four of the most brilliant and distinguished prostitutes in Paris off for a holiday to the remote and isolated castle of Ceiling. Besides a numerous complement of wives, servants, and other victims. These four women survive the ensuing horrors. They will all return home safe and sound, saved by their wickedness, wit, and rationality. According to Saad's philosophy, a rational woman sees the value in trading sex for monetary gain and status. She is not precious about virginity or her body. In fact, sex for money is viewed as one of the most honest human exchanges. Angela Carter enumerates this at length, which I will quote in full here. Quote, The whore has made of herself her own capital investment. Her product, her sexual activity, her fictitious response, is worth precisely what the customer is willing to pay for it. No more and no less. But that is only what is true of all products. But the whore is despised by the hypocritical world because she has made a realistic assessment of her assets and does not have to rely on fraud to make a living. In an area of human relations where fraud is regular practice between the sexes, her honesty is regarded with a mocking wonder. She sells herself, but she is a fair tradesman, and her explicit acceptance of contractual obligation implicit in all sexual relations mocks the fraud of the honest woman, who will give nothing at all in return for goods and money, except the intangible and hence unassessable perfume of her presence. The honest whore is assured of her own immediate value, not only in her own valuation, but in the valuation of her customers. So she can afford to ignore the opinion of the rest of the world, but she will not be respected for her integrity, although if she is successful enough and her business prosper, she may ruin men like any other successful entrepreneur." End quote. The brothel features heavily as a backdrop in Saad's pornography. We've seen previously, at the beginning of this video essay, how the prison in the Woman in Prison film functions as an evil Eden, such as those featured in Saad's stories. But more than that, the prison is the ultimate brothel, with Saadian women in charge of the lowly Justines that inhabit it. Rather than selling their own bodies, the Saadian heroines in the form of wardens and guards take complete control of their inmates by forcibly pimping them out to both men and women. You're very lucky. You've been invited to dinner by the governor. A privilege very few girls in this prison ever get to enjoy. No, you can't make me. I went away. After her. Bring her back. Wait. She's the governor's choice, so don't mock her beauty. Now go. Who is she? What difference does it make? What counts is she's real good. All of them are real good. How much? Hmm. Ten grand. Oh, you think I'm crazy? No girl is worth that. And what did she cost you, two grand? Five. All right, I'll give you six for her. Mm. Nah, eight. That's the best I can do. 
Oh, all right, it's a deal. Everyone up. A few of you leave tomorrow morning. Do everything you can to please the buyers, and you'll lead a life of luxury, jewels. And we all like jewels. And you never can tell girls you could even meet the man of your life. He'll take care of you. Not bad, huh? I'd do anything for a jewel. You can count me out. We're not merchandising to be bought and sold. We got most of us out here with the promise of work. Nobody mentioned being locked up in this filthy hole. Shut up, girl. You don't like it, well, too bad. Follow orders or you get some of this. Sex trafficking and pimping is one of the most prominent and consistent plot elements in the women in prison film. Saudi and heroines like Juliet engage in sexual affairs with their own bodies, for either for profit or for fun, and are embarrassed by professions of love. But in the women in prison film, sex work as mastery is taken a step further. For it is not the Sadian wardens slash guards that engage in sex for pay, but the inmates who are trafficked, raped, and forced into this kind of servitude by the Sadian heroines. It is how the tormentors demonstrate their power over their victims and further debase and dehumanize them. It is a rational conclusion for these villainesses, for they have access to a whole stable of helpless women with no rights to speak of, and the Saudian conclusion is to exploit this reality. Angela Carter imagines the Saudian heroine as a shrewd businesswoman, working her way up the corporate ladder and leaning in a la Sheryl Sandberg. Quote, when I think of Juliet, when I try to imagine what she might look like in a restaurant or a nightclub in late 20th century London or New York, when I put her behind her red leather desk, high up in one of the corporate palaces of multinational corporations, tetkily telephoning her stockbroker, or most strikingly, interviewing a secretary, male or female, eyeing the applicant with the canny eye of a farmer in the beast market, I see no more resonant image than that of the cosmopolitan girl. Hard, bright, dazzling, and meretricious. She plays to win this one. She knows the score. Take a look. That's her. She's a minor. So what? Your customers will go wild. <laughs> yeah. After I get finished with her. All right. So what kind of dough you asking for? I want 7,000. 7,000? That's pretty high. I can get a 12-year-old for 7,000. She's worth more than that. That good, eh? Yeah, bring her along. Come on, girl, let's go. No, don't, no, don't no, 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 favors. I owe Stone too. One is Rita and one is you. What do you mean? 
stone plays rough, but at least he can stick it in. I can't do that. You fuck who I tell you to fuck. Well, fuck you! The relationship between the sex drive and the death drive is well-tread ground. Georges Bataille made the connection in his philosophical tome, Erotism, which theorizes that human life is a process of erotic trauma wherein we are continuous and discontinuous beings, brought into the world bound to the mother and seeking that connection through the sex act until we die and return to the void. The Marquis de Sade was well aware of the connection. His erotic narratives usually end in death and murder. I'll rip your pot, you cut. Chop off my head, I don't care. I'll die like a queen, even though I never lived like one. <laughs> Chop it off. You'll keep your head until you talk. Now I'm really going to make you talk. Juliet's initiation into Saudian hierarchy is completed by a murder. This is your last The libertines chance. of the 120 days of Sodom end their revelries with mass murder. And Justine ends with the death of the title character, struck Where? down by an errant lightning bolt. For Saad, death is the final, ultimate orgasm. Murder the ultimate act of sadistic rationality and erotic consummation. Carter says it best that for Saad, quote, Eros is not at war with death, but in complicity with it, end quote. Murder and death feature heavily in the woman in prison film. The first of these deaths usually occurs through neglect rather than outright torture. The heroine addict in need of a fix is a staple character in the genre. Bound behind bars and unable to obtain her substance of choice without smuggling, she is usually subject to blackmail and finally withdrawal symptoms that lead to her death. The withdrawal process is shown in gruesome detail in true exploitation film fashion. The addict sweats, shakes, pines for drugs, and is reduced to an abject mass of tears and desire much in the same way the torture victims are left after their punishment sessions. Withdrawal is treated as its own kind of titillating torture for the voyeuristic viewer. Her death serves as an appetizer for the murders to come. There is typically at least one murder that occurs in any women in prison film. The death of the addict teases at this. Women are brutalized by rapists, shanked by other inmates in racially tense riots, or outright murdered by predatory inmates, wardens, or guards in a display of absolute power. To wield control over human life itself, to possess Mastery of life and death is the ultimate display of Saudian power. 
just a little scratch there. Yeah. You ask too many questions, you'll wind up with laryngitis. <laughs> the murdered female body is shown in graphic detail, often eroticized. Legs are spread open, bodies supplicant and supine or prostrate, half naked and vulnerable, almost inviting. In The Saudian Woman, Angela Carter positions the violence of the free woman in the context of the patriarchy itself. Quote, A free woman in an unfree society will be a monster. Her freedom will be a condition of personal privilege that deprives those on which she exercises it of her own freedom. The most extreme kind of this deprivation is murder. These women murder. End quote. This essay has only scratched the surface of potential in regards to Saudian theory and women in prison films. Female sadism is one of the most common tropes in genre cinema, especially in the realm of the exploitation film. Angela Carter's analysis of Saud is readily applied to this group of films, but could be used to analyze a host of other female-centric exploitation fare, such as the lesbian vampire or the rape-revenge film. For now, we shall stay within the walls of the prison, the Saudian Eden, where the masses are simply divided into predators and victims underneath the black leather-clad fist of sadistic power and control. So I am a professor of Spanish and Latin American studies at the University of Alberta in Canada. And I do research on Latin American film, more specifically on sexploitation, uh, the sexploitation genre, exploitation, exploitation cinemas in Latin America, and to figure out, you know, what is exploitation and how to define it. 
Latin American cinema already has some of these markers that could be part of what exploitation cinema is. So for instance, the whole piece on technical incompetence, depending on the history and the period and the institutional support that Latin American cinema received or that specific directors or films received, then you will see better, more modern equipment and more modern practices or not. Another piece is low budget. So what is a low budget? Uh, in Latin American cinema, uh, budgets are much lower in general. Uh, and so in the 1960s and 70s, when a lot when this big body of work was made, um, budgets were very low because this was uh, during the time of the decline of the studios in the big industries. And then the other piece that has to do with it being an alternative to the mainstream, Latin American cinema is always an alternative to the mainstream, which is Hollywood, and it's the dominant cinema in Latin America. So it's always that case. Um, but I would say that some of the cinema, interestingly enough, um, at the time was the mainstream because there were so many films being made and, and audiences went to see it. So it was the mainstream. These films were not big budget films. They were not seen by big audiences outside of the nation states, but they were very popular within their nation. They were disregarded by the critics. So the critics didn't see them as part of the national film history, but they were made for a popular audience and they did draw in popular audiences locally. It, it is um, a slippery kind of tricky thing to define it as exploitation because, because you have to compare it also to Latin American cinema. Um, and and that cinema is always marginal in comparison to Hollywood. So we say it's on the margins of the margin. Three countries that had a very strong industry were Mexico, Argentina, and Brazil. And those are the countries that most of the cinema is coming from. However, you see other countries doing co-productions I'm, I'm calling them countries, but it, it really was the independent filmmakers trying to find money from different from different people and and doing it through co-productions. And that was a way of not only um, finding money to produce the films, but also finding money or, or finding ways of distributing it so that that more people would have access to it and be able to see it. But when you have co-productions with other countries, then, then they were seen also in those countries. And so you may have smaller countries that don't really have a very strong history of a film industry. So a lot of the films were shot in spaces that were identifiable. You'll see films done in Panama, in, in Ecuador, these countries that really have no history or very little history of filmmaking. Um, and it was a way, again, to reach a different audience. And that's why they were seen throughout Latin America. The jungle is a place of wilderness, 
the uncivilized, the primitive, etc. It's similar to that, but it has the added location of being in Latin America. For instance, Amazon jail, by the title, you know that it's in the Amazon, that it is in Brazil, or it could be in other parts of the Amazon in the region. Um, but it is in South America, right? It is seen as, as other. It is the global South. That is very clear there. It's signaling to this kind of neo-colonialist space of trying to dominate the uncivilized primitive jungle location. There were some movies that were made in South America at the time and, and advertised as that, like Snuff is a perfect example, right? Warning, you are about to see scenes of a film said to be the most controversial in the history of motion pictures. The movie they said could never be shown. In fact, you have read the headlines across the newspapers of this country and the world, and you have heard the news. This is the movie that could only have been made in South America, where life is cheap. It will shock you and astound you. It is not meant for weak hearts or weak stomachs. Because of the highly controversial and violent nature of this movie, we are only able to show you some selected, edited scenes at this time. But the complete, unexpurgated, unedited, uncensored version will be coming soon to this theater. And that was very clearly marketed as made in South America, where life is cheap. So it was, it was really playing up all the stereotypes of the region. The jungle, I think, has all these connotations and, and it is important to locate it in a place where all these things that couldn't happen in, in the civilized north um, all of a sudden can happen in this, in this southern kind of um, backwater like the jungle, right? From the mid 60s, there's an explosion and then and then into the 70s. And by the early 80s, it starts to trickle down. So it's really during the dictatorship. So it's very connected to the dictatorships in both Argentina and Brazil. In Mexico, there wasn't technically a dictatorship, but Mexico was ruled by one party from 1929 to the year 2000. So it's really the Cold War. I, I think there is a relationship between the Cold War and the regimes that were in place in Latin America that were clearly puppet governments of the U.S. and the making of these films. In the, in the countries where there is an industry, so some would be coming out of the industry. Others like for instance, in the case of Brazil, they had a very, um, a very strong TV uh, industry. And so they might be coming out of that. They might be in theater and then, and then dabbling. So they weren't necessarily just making exploitation. Although there are examples of people just making kind of exploitation, like Jose Mojica Maran, who's like a very well-known example. He made his own kind of films, and that's all really he did. There are examples like that. Um, Armando Bo, 
he had his own style and all the films basically are within that style. He was an example of, of somebody that started an industry. He was an actor during the um, the industrial period in the in the thirties, forties, and then he began to 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 direct. Then there are people like Rene Cardona, senior in Mexico, made a lot of the Santo films, the wrestling movies, and then he did much more than that as well. They had their hands in 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 different genres. One thing that that I've uncovered in my recent research is that there are also there are some women directors uh, in Brazil. There was I haven't uncovered any in Mexico or uh, Argentina, but in Brazil I have. So, for instance, there was Rosangela Maldonado who was an actress and then also directed some movies with Mojica Maran. There were people like Lenita Peroy, Teresa Trautmann, Ana Carolina, and Helena Solberg, who did some work in the new Latin American cinema and then did some porno chanchadas. An interesting example is Adelia Sampaio, who was a black woman, and she directed some films that had lesbian sex. So there are some examples. I think that that's completely new territory, and uh, I think there's a, a lot there to be done to look into that. <laughs> Generally, I think many of the actors were non-professional. This is where it has some connections to like the new Latin American cinema. They also had non-professional actors. But you do see actors becoming um, big stars, like even from these films. So that's the case of Isabel Sarli, right? She was a huge star internationally. That's all she starred in were these, these exploitation films. You have people like Sonia Braga that is now a very well-known and established star in Brazil and, and starred in the telenovelas. But she was also part of the porno chanchadas. So you have a variety of people that were acting. Some may have come from the TV. Telenovelas were very important, especially in Brazil. So it depends on the film. There are films with very strong women roles. And 
in uh, Amazon jail, there is that character that's, that is also the head and controlling, although she's not the ultimate boss, right? There are movies with really strong women like Lola La Trailera, which is a, a truck driver, very strong woman, fights, she drives a truck. So, and, and there are other women like even in my work with Bo and Sarli, she has some roles where she's very dominant, even when her sexuality is so out of control, but she's still, she, she does what she wants. So what happened in Brazil, and I can and I can talk a little bit about the context as well, which is very, very important, is that Brazil has a genre called porno chanchada. And the porno chanchada is kind of an umbrella term. It goes back to the chanchada, which were comedies from the 40s. The porno chanchada were like sex comedies, and that's how it started. But they use that term to talk about anything that's really sex exploitation or that has any sex in it. And those films were allowed during the dictatorship. So the dictatorship of Brazil was from 1964 to 1985. But by the 70s, um, it was censorship was really a big thing. And a lot of the, the more political and social films were not allowed to be made. And so even directors that were making those that kind of cinema started making porno chanchalas because porno chanchalas were allowed and they had very little, um, they were seen as a way of just, you know, entertaining the audience. They, they had no value, no, um, they weren't seen as, as any threat to the dictatorship. So, of course, um, people started making uh, and and they had other messages in them. But you see, a lot of these exploitation films are hybrid. So you'll have Jose Mojica Marin as an example, right? He, he does kind of horror, but he adds a lot of sex. And it's very also auteur-like because he's, you watch a film and you know it's his film. He has very specific styles. And so there's a lot of hybridity in terms of genre. So even the porno chanchada that started off as sex comedy really incorporates a lot of different things. Most are melodramas. Melodrama has always been a very strong genre in Latin American cinema. And one of the themes that is really common in Brazilian cinema, like even in industrial cinema, and you see it in the porno chanchada as well, is carnival. Because carnival is, is so important to, to Brazilian culture, and so you do see that kind of having fun, and it, it infiltrates in different ways. And a lot of the, the actual sex comedies were very light. There were some even socially and political um, filmmakers that were making films that couldn't continue to make the films they were making and then turned to things like the porno chanchada to make films and they had a lot of violence, a lot of sex, and these things had political connotations.
qualquer semelhança com fatos. Reais. Ou irreais pessoas vivas. Mortas ou imaginárias. É mera coincidência. Um para o oeste sobre o terceiro mundo. I mean, in Brazil, there is there's this movement called Boca do Lixo, which is the mouth of garbage. The name comes from the, the red light district in Sao Paulo. And the directors, a bunch of directors, Jose Mojica Marin is part of it, is part of the group that, that made Cinema Marginal, which is marginal cinema or Uji Gruji underground cinema. And so they were, they were like auteurs. They were making films, challenging things like the status quo. They were challenging like the violence that was happening with violence. It's a very traumatic time in Latin American history. And what was happening there um, was was being shown, uh, not in all films, but it was being shown in in a lot of these um, Latsploitation films. And I think that's something that um, it's only now being rediscovered and and analyzed. <laughs> Oh! 